uh, study on uh, how we read our Bible. And we looked last week at the Old Testament. And um, in the Old Testament, you, you've, got, um, you've got quite different information. The Old Testament has a range of composition of uh, 1,100 years. Daryl, this monitor's not on right here. I don't know if that's maybe just... That's how I see what's on the screen. Um, if you ever notice me on Sunday morning, sometimes I'm pointing down like that when I'm talking about scriptures, and I realize that doesn't mean much to the rest of you, but that's, to me, that's where it's at, and so that's good. So if I ever, you ever catch me doing that, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my monitor, and on Sunday night, it's up there. But you've got a composition of 1,100 years, but with the New Testament, you're looking at maybe 35 years, 40 years at the most. So think about how different that's going to make the scope of your material. Um, You've got at least 10 different types of literary forms in the Old Testament, but only four in the the New Testament. Um, And the, uh, the New Testament, it's new because it picks up with the birth of Christ. And with the birth of Christ it realizes that there is now a new lens through which to understand Scripture. Now, you may have heard this said before, that between the, old, the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there's a period of silence or an age of silence of about 100 or 400 years from the 4th century to the 1st century. What that means is the literature in the, the oldest literature that we have in the Old Testament may be 4th century B.C., some of it could be 2nd century B.C., but then you have no new writing. Um, This isn't an age of silence in the sense that we don't know what's going on. Actually, we have good information. We have good historical records from this time period, and it tells us something about the world that Jesus came into. Prophecy was not... Uh, the focus during this period, people did exactly like we do. They look to Scripture, they interpret Scripture, they preach Scripture, they understand Scripture. Prophecy was, uh, the, the prophecies had been given. And, and now you, you enter into a period where Scripture is prominent. So I don't think it's silence in the standpoint that God has nothing to say or the people shouldn't be listening or we don't know anything about it at all. Uh, maybe a bit of a misnomer that it's an age of silence. Uh, by the time we get to the world of Jesus, you have a very different landscape. The people are not simply Jewish. You have Jewish and non-Jewish tensions, and you have the. Uh, you remember in Acts six, you read about the the uh, the Palestinian Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. These are Jewish people who have two different cultures. And there's a clash because of now they're all Jewish. They're all, they would all say that they're children of Abraham. But they've come up in different cultures, and so they, they keep different ways. Um, they speak different languages. What has happened to create this sort of world that, that, that the, Jesus is going to be born into and he's going to teach in uh, is that you have some 400 years before Christ, you have the Greeks. Uh, we've heard of Alexander the Great. Uh, I hope you have. Uh, just This is his time period. This is when he becomes very important. And Alexander the Great um, 
you know, his, his empire extends uh, throughout most of the known world at that time. And, and they, are the, uh, they are the Greek, the, the Hellenistic people, the Greek-speaking people. And, and his empire also includes the Egyptians and the Syrians. And, and they're dominant until 63 B.C. when the Romans, the Roman Empire, takes over and, and owns that. And, and by the way, Alexander the Great's empire, he doesn't have an heir, but his empire splits in four ways. And there are four different rulers who, who try to, uh, to rule over that, and it's, uh, but it's still the same empire. And um, who cares? We're not going to get into all the detailed history. But this is, think about it, this is what is, all of this is going on around Jerusalem and Judea and Palestine. All of this is happening around that place that, that we know of as the Holy Land, the, uh, the promised land. So all of that uh, scripture that we've read from Abraham on about the land that was going to be given to Abraham, now it is subject to all of these different political uh, and, and empire changes that are going on. Uh, it's not a whole lot unlike what the land is dealing with today and the people there are dealing with today. Different players, uh, much more intense and severe in some ways, but still you've got different nations, different empires, different groups affecting this. Now imagine that you're one of the people that live in there and your story is you know that at one time your people had a kingdom and they had a king and there was a temple. Now you still see the temple, but it's not Solomon's temple. It's a much larger temple. But that temple also has been violated many times in these centuries before the time of Christ. Uh, the Romans have come in there and they've put up their political emblems and, and uh, the um, uh, others have violated that temple. And, uh, and so there's, there's rebellion. One of those culture wars involved a group of, um, of Jewish people called the Maccabees. And, and by the way, if you, you know, in some Bibles, you may find a, a, some books called First and Second Maccabees. And they take place during this time period, uh, during the, the second century. I think I've got the date up there. Yeah, 166 to 142. And um, these Maccabees are, um, well, they're led by a guy named uh, Judas Maccabeus, which is a very interesting name. It means the hammer of God. And he, uh, he is trying to establish the integrity and the purity of his people against this, this culture that's threatening to change his people. Um, now sometimes his methods are pretty violent. And this is why these scriptures are sometimes considered questionable scriptures for the Old Testament. But it's interesting reading. It's an interesting history. Uh, so this is, and, and, and by the way, he, this becomes kind of a prototype for a Messiah. People are always looking for some freedom fighter like Judah Maccabee to come in and give the people back their land. And that's what some of them expect when Christ comes. But he defies their expectations because he is a Messiah, but it's of a very different kind of kingdom than what they expect. So here's what's changing in the world. When you go from the end of the Old Testament and into the New Testament period, you've got the scattering, the diaspora, the scattering of God's people. They've ended up outside the land again. They've gone into different cultures. They've picked up those languages. This is why it's significant on the day of Pentecost that everyone there is Jewish, but they speak different languages. They no longer have a common language. How are you going to get the people together if they do not have a common language? 
Well, that's why the miracle of the Holy Spirit steps in and unites people with one spiritual language. Uh, you have the rise of the synagogue during this time period. If you're, a, if you're away from Jerusalem, if you're away from the, the, the temple, then you have to have another way to assemble and remember who you are. And this is the development of the synagogue. Uh, then you have the division of the Jewish people into different groups. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. And each of them have a different approach to how to navigate the changes in cultures. And just in very simplistic terms... The Sadducees embrace, embrace culture. They understand that there's going to have to be a compromise, so they're going to embrace the ruling culture. If it's the Greeks, if it's the Romans, they're going to embrace it, they're going to accept it, and they're going to say, you know, this culture is the culture that rules. We're going to be God's people in the midst of it. We'll just kind of accept what's going on. The Essenes, on the other hand, have a retreat strategy. We're going to go out into the desert. We're going to live out here away from society. That's evil, corrupt society. And meanwhile, we'll be waiting out here until the Messiah shows up. And when he does, we're going to come to town with him and we're going to reclaim our land. And somewhere in the middle is the Pharisees who live in culture. They live in the society. They realize that the society is not entirely uh, godly. But even though they live within it, they live slightly differently and and they become a kind of a peculiar people living in that in that culture of all the three i think the ones that we're going to relate to the most are the pharisees and that can be pretty scary at times because you're thinking the pharisees are supposed to be the bad guys and and the, the truth is i think why the pharisees are subject to so much remember paul is a pharisee paul the apostle and and there and here's why they are subject to so much criticism because They are very close to getting it right, but they miss the emphasis. Instead of putting the, you know, when when Jesus in Matthew 23 gives his sermon and he says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite, that's the word for an actor, for a pretender. He means that outwardly they have all the right appearance of faithfulness, but nothing has changed in here. This was the focus of the sermon this morning. We can get all of our P's and Q's right. We can get all of our appearances right. But if we aren't changed from within, we're no different than the culture around us. And the scary part about that is we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay and we really haven't been changed. I mean, give the Sadducees and the Essenes credit. At least they're a little radical. Sadducees just own it. Look, you know, we're just really not that good. I mean, you know, we're just embracing the culture. Well, it's just kind of our tradition and culture. The Essenes at least are living out in caves and saying, no, we're ready. The challenging thing about being a Pharisee is you can be so close and yet miss it totally. This is the world then that this is what has happened to the people of God by the time we get to the period where the New Testament documents are going to be written. The significance of the New Testament, and by the way, we talked about the significance of the Old Testament scriptures. It's the story of the people of God. It's how God is redeeming a people. With the New Testament, it becomes very simple because the significance always points to the birth of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the exaltation of Jesus. This is really just one event centered on one very important person. But it becomes the hinge of the ages, and Jesus transforms all of history. 
Every New Testament book will point back to how Jesus changes this, um, the way that we read Scripture and the, under, and the way we understand Scripture. I would offer this. From, from, I, mean, I, would, I would just present this. And I want to present this as a lens that we need to be aware of. Very often in our upbringing, in our tradition, we want to look at the New Testament and learn what it says about the church. That's not bad. But that's not its primary significance. Its primary significance is to talk about what kind of people we are when we realize who Christ is. A technical way of putting that is you've got your Christology, which is what you teach, believe, understand, know about Christ. You have your ecclesiology, which is what you teach, know, understand about the church. Our ecclesiology can never come ahead of our Christology because you do not fit Jesus into the church. The church must fit into who Jesus is. Does that make sense? In other words, if we read the New Testament, we understand that there's a revelation here about who Christ is then who we're supposed to be as the people of God is going to follow. We've just got to get those in the right priority. We need to start understanding how Scripture reveals Christ to us, and then we will follow and be the church. So we don't, again, it's like the Pharisees. You don't want to miss it by being so close and yet miss the center of the target. Um, the significance of the New Testament also contains things like the ministry of the apostles, the growth of the church, and how the church then includes the Gentiles. And then there's this significant historical event with the destruction of the temple. Now think about what that means. When the Romans come in and they raise the temple, they, they, they tear down the, the temple in Jerusalem, where did the apostles and the early church meet before the destruction of the temple? They met at the temple. They still thought that the temple was an important place to gather as God's people. But once that's taken away, they've got, to, they've got to grasp the significance of what it means no longer to have that temple. What does it mean? And that's why you have texts written that say that, you know, you, yourselves, us, this fellowship, we are the temple of God. And there's also persecution. But by the way, all of these things point to Christ. All of these things find their meaning in Christ. The ministry of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, was centered on Christ, who he said he was, and how he was uh, crucified, buried, raised to life, and exalted. Uh, the growth of the church is about people understanding who Christ is, witnessing Christ, seeing the Holy Spirit, and, be, and, and then becoming the people of God. Uh, it's about God's activity. Um, so there are um, there's just four things I want to tell you real quick about the development of, of what we call the New Testament. And the New Testament is a collection of writings that contain four Gospels, and one of those Gospels, Luke-Acts, is a two-part Gospel. One dealing with Christ up to the point of his resurrection and exaltation into heaven, and then the rest of it is the account of what happens with the people who follow Christ. And by the way, in Acts, Christ is not absent. When you read Acts, Christ is very much involved. 
he speaks in Acts. He shows up in Acts. The people are doing what Christ did. Luke is the author of both, and they fit together. So you really need to read those as part one and part two. You have the, uh, the first installment, and then you have the sequel with Acts. Okay? And, uh, and, then, and then you have the letters of Paul and the letters of other writers, and then you have the Revelation. And the Revelation, again, is centered on what? It's centered on Christ. Christ is the central figure in the Revelation. But there's four things about the development of this collection of documents that we call the New Testament. And this is how they come about. Remember, there's a, they don't just come to, to us as one book. You know, here you go. Here's the collection. Here's the set. Matthew through uh, Revelation. They show up over time, and they're written at different time periods, and then they get collected. The way it starts is the early church meets in the temple. They meet in synagogues if they're not in the Jerusalem area. They, they, they have a worship, and in that worship, they, they practice certain common things. They practice communion. They read from the Old Testament. Scripture would have been a part of their early gatherings, and the Scripture that they had was the Old Testament. But they also had eyewitness accounts. They would have the testimony of Peter and the other apostles, and they would talk about Jesus, and they would... Uh, they would explain who Jesus was. They're all interpreting the activity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So this is stage one of the development. In stage two, and by the way, these don't just break suddenly. It's a, it's a spectrum of changes. Uh, this just simplifies it. In stage two, the apostles and the other writers respond to the needs of other churches. As the, as the movement grows and you have other churches in different parts of the world, then they respond with letters. So Paul... Is, is writing letters to other congregations that he has a relationship with in response often to issues that they're having in that congregation. You see an example of this in 1 Colossians uh, chapter 1. He says, My brothers, uh, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So here's Paul, and he's, in a, uh, he's outside of Corinth. He's got this relationship with Corinth. And from the people who make up Chloe's household, and she's probably one of the, you know, her church meets there at her house or something like that. She's prominent, and somehow the church is centered around uh, her house and her hospitality, her family. And then you have a delegation of people that go to Paul. They've got some problems, and they come to Paul as their teacher, as their mentor, as an apostle, and they say, you know, help us out with these things. First Corinthians, then, is a record of Paul answering the questions that they've asked. It's very interesting that Paul answers all of their questions by going back to Christ. The, the identity, the person, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Until finally you get to chapter 15 and he'll say, you know, I want to remind you what's of the greatest importance. And he gives us the gospel in a nutshell that Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried. He was raised. Many people saw it, up to 500 there in the beginning verses of chapter 15, you'll see that Paul comes back to that. And you can tell that that's at the core of what it means to be the followers of Christ. So these letters get written in response to concerns or like you have a letter like Romans and Paul will write that because he does not know the Roman churches in the same way that he knows the Corinthian churches, but he wants to introduce himself and he wants to talk about the work that he's doing and then when you get to the end of Romans, he says, Lord willing, I'm going to go to Spain. And, and Romans is sort of a um, support letter. 
He's hoping that they will be involved in his efforts to go to Spain. But you have different reasons for writing these letters. Uh, Jude will say, I wanted to write you a letter uh, to encourage you in the common faith that we had. But I find that I have to encourage you to strive for the faith. And then he talks about problems. So the letters of the New Testament sometimes deal with the development of the people of God. And something is learned from that. Stage three When these letters are delivered to one of these churches then, that church will copy those letters and then they'll be distributed. And in Colossians 4, Paul mentions that practice. There's a belief in the early years of the church that the letters and the advice, the writing, the scripture to one congregation can be good for another one. So Paul writes... After this letter has been read to you, this is, he's, he's writing this to the, Coloss- the, the church in Colossae, the Colossian church. He says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. And you may be asking, where is the letter from Laodicea? I don't, not in the Bible. But... There is this practice of sharing these letters. Now, there is a theory that the letter to the Laodiceans may also be the letter to the Ephesians. But either way, I think from this scripture, you can see that there's a practice of sharing these letters. Maybe some of the letters were considered to be of more importance than others. Uh, That some of them had more of a general application than others. We don't know. But the early church is discerning this. They're comparing it to the Old Testament scriptures. They're understanding how it fits in with those and it's consistent with those. And and, and remember, the Holy Spirit is active in all of this as well. And so there's a a decision-making process going on here. Also, these letters are are being, um, uh, well, the Gospels, for example, are written to preserve the eyewitness accounts. So in Luke chapter 1, you read Luke's intent for writing. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write you an orderly account Uh, For you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is expressing his intent to write down the eyewitness teaching. Now, it's very possible, and and there's no reason that they shouldn't have felt this way, that the first generation of Christians felt that Jesus Christ would come back in their lifetime and set everything right. In fact, I can't see how they didn't expect that to be the case. That's not, a, um, that's not a failure. Every generation of Christians should expect that Christ will come back in our lifetime. We, we, we may have to think about what happens if it doesn't happen, but honestly, we should all be living as if Christ will return in our generation. Um, there's no other way to go about it. But by the time they see some of the oldest saints passing away, they may be thinking, you know, We may be passing this on to a second generation. So Luke sees the need to write down an orderly account. 
Maybe also so that the accounts can be carried out and transmitted to the rest of the world. That, uh, you know, after you tell things orally for a while, the, the stories can, can, can corrupt. So Luke makes it his mission to go to those eyewitnesses to collect their stories and to put it down as a gospel, a record for people like Theophilus. And with this, then, you start collecting these, these different uh, scriptures that become the new scriptures that reveal who Jesus is. And, if, and, and as you read the New Testament, you're going to notice that it relies heavily on the Old Testament, the Old Testament quotations. Uh, there will be so many quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. They're picking up that scripture. They're interpreting it. It's, it's, it's like sermon writing. They're preaching a new sermon based on these old scriptures. Look at what Hebrews will do with it. Uh, look at what Revelation does with it. Uh, the Gospels, what they will do with it. And so you have these different impulses that develop these New Testament letters until they, uh, letters, Gospels, writings, until by the time you get to the 300s, it's pretty well set. It's set well before that what the commonly accepted scriptures are that will make up the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 13 that every teacher of the law, and, and he's talking about not a Pharisee, not a scribe of the law, but he's talking about a scribe for the kingdom, for the, for the spiritual kingdom of heaven. He says, someone who is, um, every teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Think of this image of a householder, um, someone who, um, who maybe keeps treasures or keeps items to be sold or keeps goods that can be shared with others. There are new things, interesting things, but there's also old and valuable things there as well. And I think that's how we need to regard ourselves, that Scripture is not dead letter on a page. It's not legal code. It's not, uh, um, it, it's not something uninteresting, but in fact, it is a collection of new treasures and old. Now, we may think that all of the Bible is old, and I guess in perspective, it is. But you've got to remember, we've all got to remember that in the Bible, you have scriptures that are far older. You have scriptures, let me put it like this. You have scriptures like the Psalms that are at least as old, if not older, at the time of Jesus than the New Testament scriptures are for us, if that makes sense. I mean, at the time of Jesus, there are certain parts of scripture which we look at it as the same Bible, and by the time of Jesus, those scriptures are already ancient. They are millennia old. Um, and I think that shows us what a vast and unique set of treasured writings that we have uh, with this inspired word of God and I hope that inspires you and encourages you to continue to be students to be those householders who find treasures old and new and I think another way to understand that is have you ever read a scripture that might be very familiar to you and yet on reading it again you discover something totally new about it absolutely that's why scripture is a living word and I think we should always keep ourselves so open to that 
Because when we read Scripture, we've got to let Scripture have its way with us. We can't come to Scripture hoping to force it into the groove that we want it to be forced into. We have to come to it humbly as the Word of God and hear it all over again. We'll pick up at this point uh, in two weeks when we continue this. Right now, Lee's going to lead us in this uh, next song. If you want to partake of communion, that's in room 100. And uh, then uh, Braden will dismiss us in prayer after this.